Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we're watching The World is Not Enough. James Bond uncovers a nuclear plot while protecting an oil heiress from her former kidnapper, an international terrorist who can't feel pain. And yeah, our, our show is still in the lie territory because we have seen this movie. And because we've seen this movie... We need to have a guest. David, who is our guest today? Kayla from Gates of Orchid and Iris and Twitter fame. Hi, Kayla. Hello, internet. Thank you so much for being here to talk Bond. Oh, yeah. No, I, you, I mean, you really didn't have to even attempt to twist my arm to get me to talk about this. So. <laughs> We're so excited. We've we've been all alone talking about Bond for a while, so it's, it's time to have other humans. <laughs> if i would equate myself to a human but i'm like human adjacent so i think that works we're pod people so that's fair i think everyone who does a podcast is a pod person so facts (laughs) (laughs) so kayla what is your history experience with the james bond franchise oh gosh uh i've been a bond fan for as long as i can remember I've even watched the really old ones that are like way, probably way too many hours <laughs> for what they are. Same. For my graduation gift, my girlfriend at the time gave me a 50th anniversary Blu-ray uh, set of Bond. Nice. So definitely subjected them to watching all of the really old ones that probably should be way shorter than they are. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's always been something. And, you know, of course... Had Goldeneye the game when I was a kid, you know, had to play that all of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's pretty much been entire lifetime Bond fan. That's awesome. So that raises the question, who is your favorite Bond? Oh, Pierce Brosnan. Right. <laughs> I was like, what big question is that? It's a very valid one, and it's it's a very complicated question. I will say part of the credit does kind of go to co-star in one of the Pierce Brosnan films, but that's a different movie, so we won't talk about that. <laughs> okay. Fair. Fair. How do, how do we feel about George Lazenby? Uh, eh. <laughs> <laughs> that movie is very, very good, and he is kind of iffy. Yeah. Just because of all the crap about that movie... <laughs> People who have seen the whole thing. I love how people respond to that question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is awesome. You've seen all of this. You've been through this entire journey. This is movie 19. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about how big it is. Yeah. Like, this is the 19th film in a thing. I don't think I've watched anything this big. No. Ever. 19. And at least twice this franchise was almost done. Yeah. Fair. Because it deserved it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, there's only, I guess, so many spy-related, vague plot things you can come up with before you kind of start repeating yourself a little bit. There's also so many times you can put an actor who's absolutely dead tired of a franchise into a movie (laughs) before audiences start catching on. (laughs) It's probably why they switch out Bond so often, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Doctor Who already knew about this problem, so they <laughs> solved it. Yeah. They, 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 that This is James Bond is a Time Lord. We know this. <laughs> it's obviously just following the same formula. It's what you need. Okay. 
general thoughts. How do we feel about the world is not enough? Oh my god, all the one-liners. <laughs> <laughs> like, even for a Bond movie. <laughs> it's almost like they had a script, and then they got rid of it, but they only kept the one-liners. Or they were like, Bond, we're gonna get a close-up on you, and we want you to, you know, just say something that pops into your head, and every time it's sexual, <laughs> and you end a one-liner. <laughs> <laughs> or cliche. Uh, well, this is such a weird movie, too, because literally halfway through, you could feel the movie go from, this is an okay movie, I'm fine with this, and then it just slowly descends into bad, <laughs> like, right in the middle. And there's there's even a line. There's a line and a moment <laughs> at which I just clocked this movie. It's called Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, that snap <laughs> right behind her head. <laughs> and like, first of all, ew, gross. But also... <laughs> It was literally from that point on, everything in the movie just got worse and worse and worse. That was the turn, because from there, you're just like, what is happening? <laughs> I feel like they had a script to that point and then just hand waved. <laughs> they threw it out. I mean, hell, we have, we have what is the equivalent of the Indiana Jones stunt adventure in the middle of this movie. <laughs> oh my God, I literally said that. <laughs> that whole that whole sequence at what's his face's place with the swinging oh the caviar factory yes I was like this is the Indiana Jones stunt show that's what this entire sequence is even for a Bond movie there were a higher number of like specialized air quotes vehicle scenes <laughs> like yes. normally we get a couple of good chase scenes with like the newest car Q has given him for him to destroy. And maybe like another vehicle for him to destroy, but we got like four or five of them yeah. this time. You 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 have to have a chase in the beginning. Yeah. Then you have one about a halfway to two thirds of the way through. And it has to destroy the car. Sure. Then you have a specialized vehicle and a helicopter. We have to have a helicopter. Yeah. Literally, and, it's in every movie. And then you have one more vehicle getaway type thing. And that's usually what happens. There's a formula to these movies. There's a reason that they've they've made it work this well for this long. And that's okay. They do the same thing in Mission Impossible. And I enjoy it. I feel like for this one, though, it was like even more. Because like we had the opening boat scene, right? Then we had, before even that, we had the attempted murder jumping out the window scene to run away. He does Bond style. And then after that, you have the boat into the hot air balloon. And In, into the hot air balloon. Good God. Where he, where he then injures himself, which I do like that we show him actually get injured. Still don't think it's proportional to what it should have been, though. <laughs> no, we should see him in a cast. He should have broken, not like sprained or whatever they called it. We should see like a, a subtitle that says six months later. In a traction bed, like Jesus. Something. Like, it's not great. No. no. That opening sequence is just like, this keeps going. <laughs> and going. I honestly was wondering if they had cut out the theme song because it went on so long. I agree. I was like, did I miss something? What? The answer is no. No, it was just bad. Yeah. It was bad. So our thoughts are, they had an idea. It wasn't bad. But then they made a bad movie. Ooh. They stumbled. <laughs> they, they, they fell down. 
Doubled at the finish line, guys. Yeah. All right. The budget for this film was $135 million. They're consistently upping the ante. And as we talked about, with the Brosnan years, we really officially get into blockbuster territory with Bond. It opened to $127 million, and its total gross was $362 million. It's the highest grossing Bond film of the 20th century. Of course, each successive Bond film is more profitable than the last. It opened against Sleepy Hollow the same weekend, and both were the only two movies to gross more than $30 million on the same day in their opening weekends. Well, that's not that's not surprising. Wait, Johnny Depp Sleepy Hollow? Yes. Yeah. To be fair, at the time, that was a huge deal. Yeah, I was like, damn, that, I didn't even think about that coming out at the same time. This was 99, right? This is 1999. Yeah. Oh, this was the same year as Thomas Crown Fair. That was eight, 98. No, that was 99. It was 98. No, it wasn't. Go look at IMDb. Um, 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 <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh-huh. You're probably right, but I, I'm pretty sure I, it's 98. I know I'm right. Arguments. I feel like there I'm, needs to be a bet on the line here. No. <laughs> No, I'm just right. <laughs> I I remember I looked this up not too long ago because it came out mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. August 6, 1999. Bam! Congratulations. I'm almost always wrong. So what you're saying is as I shouldn't bet on you next time. No, never. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Though I, I do have to give credence. David won the Oscar poll this year. I did. And this is the first Bond movie to be released solely by MGM without the United Artists banner. UA finally went bankrupt for good. (laughs) It took them 70 years. They held on. I mean, that's the long ride. Poor Charlie Chaplin. No. He founded UA. I remember those movie theaters. The first independent movie production studio. All right. Our writers are Neil Purvis and Robert Wade. Before this, Neil Purvis and Robert Wade both worked on the movie Plunkett and McLean, which if you've never seen is really fun. It's Robert Carlyle and I think Johnny Lee Miller as grave robbers in the 1800s. Johnny Lee Miller, ooh. It's a fun little British movie that nobody remembers. Okay. After this, they are going to write on all of the remaining Bond films. They are our new... Richard Maybaum and Michael G. Wilson. And they wrote Johnny English. Oh, interesting. We have a theory about that. That actually doesn't surprise me. And then getting his last credit in the Bond franchise is Bruce Firestein, who's worked on, I believe, the last two films. Okay. So Purvis and Wade are going to be our, like, Bond plot dudes from now on. Mm, not off to mm. a good start. Mm-hmm. Well. What do we think of the writing? Okay, I I want to give them credit. The idea of this film is good. We make M vulnerable and we question her judgment, which I kind of like. And we make the villain a lady. Like the main villain is a lady. Also cool. But that's where it ends. The villains are the problem of this movie. No, my problem with our villain is that Bond is instantly loyal to her without giving us any reason for it. He's instantly protective of her. He's instantly believing her story, all of this, and none of it's earned. Something got cut out of the first run of this script in that intro. Something is missing. I could believe that. I feel like they were trying to go for like 
a much bigger twist than it ended up being. Like you could call it from the very beginning when they're like, oh, someone inside switched the lapels. You're like, oh, cool. It was either the daughter or his assistant. Like, (laughs) so like, I feel like they kind of set themselves up. Like they really wanted there to be more depth than they allowed for. Mm -hmm. Like they, they wanted it to be more impactful than it really was. They needed her to be like Paris Carver from Tomorrow Never Dies. This needed to be someone Bond knew, Bond had a relationship with. Because Paris Carver, you know, he dated a decade before. Mm. And so there's an emotional stake when this woman gets killed. What would have almost have been better is if it had been Moneypenny who had switched them. Like, so we already had in Goldeneye, another double O had turned. And then, oh my God, it's Moneypenny has turned to like, let's see how deep MI6 has gone. Like, like we have really got a problem. Can he even trust M at this point? That's fair. That would make such a cool, deep thing that he's got to deal with that would go beyond just one movie. In order for this plot to work, he needs a pre-existing relationship with this woman. Yes. That's the biggest issue there. They could have done it super easily, too, with one line. When they were explaining about the main terrorist guy and who hunted him down and put the bullet in his brain to go save her and the first time she was kidnapped, they could have just made it him instead of another double O. And bam, he saved her emotional connection. He feels responsible for her. (laughs) Like, yeah. But they, like, it was just, that was kind of lazy. Yeah. And then, like. And then the dialogue between. It's such boilerplate exposition. Almost everything they say. Oh, yeah. It's not interesting. No. And it's just leading to, like you said, one-liner after one-liner from Bond. Mm. Oh, the Christmas jokes. God damn. <laughs> so, okay, but at least they waited for most of those until the end. I know. Fair. <laughs> now, okay, and here's the other thing. Denise Richards gets a lot of shit for this movie. Yes. She doesn't deserve it. The biggest problem with her character is the way they have her costume when we first meet her. Because that's the only thing that doesn't make sense. If she just had long pants on, who cares? That that would that would be fine. And like maybe not a tank top. Well we, we like, talk- you can give her cleavage, like I get it, she's a Bond girl. But like in Goldeneye, we had a Bond girl who we knew like the actress was a model. She was dressed like a person. And then later we see her super hot body Because she's in a swimsuit on a beach like a normal person. Yeah. And like, we have a perfectly good reason for Christmas Jones to later be in a dress because she's seducing somebody. But here, she's a scientist wearing a hazmat suit, but underneath she's wearing basically nothing. That doesn't make sense. Nope. I get it a tiny bit because those things are freaking hot to be in. Fair. But like you could have either had all of the scientists be like that or had her yeah. change after getting out of the suit or had it be so hot that everyone was in like the more like summer uniform thing. She just sure. didn't need to obviously be dressed like Lara Croft. Yeah, it was very Lara Croft, like early Lara Croft vibes. Like it was worse than the Angelina Jolie version, which came three years later. I don't know if you can get worse than that version. I don't know. <laughs> like, she doesn't deserve, because she's actually pretty good. Like, she holds her own against James. Like, she doesn't instantly think he's hot shit. She suspects him. She tries to trick him with the language thing. Like, you speak Russian too well. Christmas Jones is a perfectly fine character. To me, 
the worst part of the writing centers around our two villains. And that's where everything starts to fall apart for me. I agree. The story was inspired by a segment of Nightline that Barbara Broccoli saw on a plane in 1997. The episode stated that the last giant oil discovery was found in Eastern Europe and vast resources being under the Caspian Sea. And there were small towns all across Eastern Europe, which became giant wealthy cities when they found oil underneath Mm -hmm. them with tons of casinos. And so this became a bridge with former Soviet territories and Broccoli wondered about what if a villain started taking out competitors and wanted to own the only pipeline in the region? Now we have our plot. That's not dumb. So he took a really good plot and just like put really poor writing over it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. They had a story here. And, you know, it's not just that. It's like the nuclear stuff that's sort of shoved in there for no good reason. Like you don't, it doesn't have to be nuclear bombs. I mean, this is the age, though, of that scare. It's the age of that scare, right? So almost every like spy film has something to do with like Russia or Germany or nuclear blank. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's post that, but I, I think what they're thinking about is, you know, Russia has a bunch of unexploded nuclear warheads just sitting in caves, so anybody could go in and, and use them. It would have probably been just a better idea to just have it be a series of assassinations. Yeah. They, it, it could have just been about, like, taking control of these towns with the future goal to control this pipeline. Like, that's the end game. Well, because they go out of their way in the writing. There's a line naming how many competitors she has for the pipelines. Like, how many people? Four. She has four. (laughs) Like, why are you giving us this information if it's not going to be used? It's a classic case of overcomplicating the plot. And they've done this many times. Yes, they have. Just doing five too many different little twists to try to make it more interesting. It's like, you didn't have to. (laughs) You just didn't. The film's title is the translation of the Latin phrase Orbis non sufficit. This is given to Lazenby in On Her Majesty's Secret Service for his coat of arms, and it's used in the original novels. So this is like a very old school tribute to the Bond series, even from the novels. The world is not enough is a phrase. Well, she says it. The villain oh, says it. The world is I hate there. that they keep doing this. That That's obnoxious. I could have given you the world. Oh. The world is not enough. Foolish sentiment. Family motto. So many times and like in creepy ways. Yes. <laughs> yes. The like, only time where it worked was Goldeneye. Why? Because it's the name of a freaking thing. Yeah. Like, it makes sense. Like, I hate it when they do it in TV shows. It's obnoxious. It's it's like you wrote the entire script around that moment, and it's so bad. That would, that would not surprise me at all. Ugh. Not even a little bit. The rumors at the time was that the film was going to be darker, like License to Kill and Goldeneye, with Bond's child being the main villain. That would have been cool. He had fathered a child he did not know, and the child was given away for adoption, hence the tie to his family crest in the title. Ooh. Why didn't they just keep that? That could have solved our problem we were discussing earlier about attachment. This was a fan theory. That's like, cool. this is a rumor that they had, so... I Do it know. with future bonds. We can keep it. Use it again later. Really? 
And the rumor also stated that that original plot was rejected. We don't know. This may have been like British tabloid stuff. So who the hell knows? They could have just been making it up. I don't care. It's still a good idea. (laughs) But another media rumor was that because this was going to be the last Bond of the Millennium, every surviving previous Bond girl would appear in the film, including Ursula Andress, Diana Rigg, Famke Janssen, and Barbara Bach. Well, no. (laughs) Okay. Any excuse to get Diana Rigg back? Because oh my I God. fucking love that lady. Best Bond girl of all time, honestly. But also she's dead. Her character's dead. That's true. I'm kind of okay with that not happening because I think trying to shoehorn more appearances would probably have just made this a terrible film. But the kid plot, God, that what a been great, great move. Well, because here's your thing is that opens the door of who's the mom? Could be anybody. I love it. I love it. I mean, you have to think that with the things Bond gets up to on every single one of his frickin' missions, especially the ones we don't see because these are the only ones we see of, like, he's definitely got, like, an army of kids somewhere. Oh, this is definitely not the only child he has. I mean, in the last movie, he was brushing up on a little Danish. James? Invincible's underway. Where are you? Oh, money, Penny. Um, I'm just up here at Oxford. Brushing up on a little Danish. Little? I'm afraid you're going to have to kiss off your lesson, James. We've got a situation here at the Ministry. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) jeez. So. I am quoting the film. I know you are. That's what's so sad. I know you're quoting the film. (laughs) That's that's what makes it terrible. (laughs) Uh, And once again, they cannot get enough of Goldfinger. Our villain is yet again a redo of Arik Goldfinger. With the twist that it is a woman, but it's Arik Goldfinger all over again. But there are no lasers. That That's, is true. No, there's a laser in the boat. Oh, Some damn, you're right. There's a laser there. <laughs> and plutonium. Early on, Electra was actually supposed to survive. And the movie was going to end with Bond visiting her in the hospital while she recovered. That ending tested very badly and was scrapped. And I agree, unless you're going to bring her back. Well, unless you, like, reveal something that makes it worth it. Like, it's got to pay off. If you bring people back, it's got to have a point. Yeah, I, I agree. And and that, that wouldn't work. I think that ending would have played better if they had gone with the rumors of, like, it being his kid. Yeah, that <laughs> would have been cool. That's probably the reason it didn't play well is because she screwed him over so hard. And they're like, why do you care? All right, well, writing... Pretty big stinker. They missed some they missed some big, big holes in the writing here. Mm-hmm. We move on to our director. Now, this might be the most interesting director choice that we've ever had. Mm-hmm. Our director for this film is Michael Apted. Now, a lot of people probably aren't gonna know that name, but for people who have like studied film ever, or especially documentaries, he has directed all of the sequels to the 7-Up documentary series. If you're aware of this, this is the documentary series that interviewed a group of children in the UK at seven years old, and every seven years they have done a follow-up film to find out where they're at. So he started on the second film, 7 Plus 7, and has directed all of the remaining ones, 21 Up, 28 Up, 35, 42, 49, 56, and recently 63 came out. That is his claim to fame. Okay, that's pretty cool. 
He's also directed, before this, Coal Miner's Daughter, Gorillas in the Mist, Nell, and Extreme Measures. After this, he directed Enigma, Enough with Jennifer Lopez, Amazing Grace, The Chronicles of Narnia, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and Chasing Mavericks. This is a very weird smattering of directing. (laughs) I I feel like he throws like a dart at a board to see what he's going to direct next. That explains this movie. (laughs) Yeah, it's a weird collection of all of his experiences. The direction blows. Yeah, it's not good. (laughs) It's so bad. The core problem of this movie is the writing, but there's no... There is no direction. There's nothing that's keeping it on track. So here's one of the problems, right? He is a documentary filmmaker. And the 7-Up series, it's talking heads. Mm-hmm. It's a very static kind of documentary. Mm-hmm. They are following the lives of these people over time, and it's very much an interview, where are you at in your life type thing. So a lot of the shots in this movie feel like that. Mm-hmm. He takes a big wide angle, he shows us everything in the frame, and he just sort of sits there. The camera never feels like it's moving. And I'm okay with that. Well, I'm not based on what we've done in the past two movies, and especially what we talked about with Goldeneye. These movies need the camera moving. Done effectively, that can be really freaking cool. If choreographed well, having a super wide shot with a well-choreographed chase scene or fight scene done without any camera movement... Could be gorgeous. Well, yes. It's not this movie. But he can't this do guy that. This suck. Exactly. He cannot do that. Exactly. And it fails miserably. And it's why we basically just got that whole sequence that you talk about being like an Indiana Jones ride. Yeah. I feel like he didn't even direct that. He just had the stunt coordinators be like, okay, we need to do this thing. All right. Well, we're just going to put the camera right here and do it. No, he said, follow Pierce. <laughs> no, that's what he did. Because if you watch that scene again, that's what the camera's doing. It's, this is where we're going to start, and he's going to run over there, make the camera go over there. Pretty much. Just stay in focus, that's it. Based on how it feels, it's like you have no clue where he is in that scene, and he jumps like 15 feet every cut of the frame. Maybe. Knowing what his specialty is makes like scenes like in the sub with the reactor really disappointing, because you'd think he would would have been able to get that well. (laughs) Yeah. But it also makes the whole, like, cutting things down to just the little one-liner quips make so much sense. It's the sound bite. It's just... (laughs) (sighs) The movie is already primed with kindling to set fire, and then he just dumps lighter fluid on top of it. Yeah, I think with a different director, this movie might not have been so terrible, I don't mm-hmm. know if you noticed some of the like weird cuts in the film. A big one is the first boat scene, the chase scene. At one point, the boat definitely flips all the way over and would be upside down, uh-huh. but they cut it so that it's just suddenly like right side up uh-huh. without any like full flip or like explanation. You're just like, I don't think that's how physics works. No, that's <laughs> that's not right. Well, who could have been better? Ooh, Peter Jackson. Yep. He could have been better. Barbara Broccoli had seen Heavenly Creatures and was impressed and thought he might be able to pull this off. But when he did The Frighteners, she was put off by his style and decided she didn't want to use him. Mm, 
So she hired a documentarian. Yeah, sense. I feel like that's. I feel like she waited too long. Maybe it was like, oh shit, I need someone for this movie. Oh who, yeah, who can I get? Let's yeah. get the guy who made Nell. Let's get the guy who's free for seven years. Yeah, Joe Dante of Gremlins, Inner Space, and the Burbs was considered. You know, it would have been weird. He had the action and special effects. Definitely the special under, effects. Under his belt. So definitely the a better direction than who we got. Yeah. That brand of weird would have probably saved the writing in this movie, though. It, it could have. It could have. It would have been more interesting. A dark Bond comedy. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's what we've just been waiting for, right? It's just, a, just for them to fully embrace what we all know is that it is meant to be a dark comedy. Well, then you get 67's Casino Royale. No! <laughs> Never again! James Bond playing at Casino Royale. I'm gonna punch you. <laughs> Roger Spottiswood, the director of Tomorrow Never Dies, was approached, but he did not want it after the chaos of making that movie. That's fair. And finally, their pie-in-the-sky idea was Martin Scorsese. <laughs> How did they think they were gonna pull that off? If you know anything about the Broccoli family, <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. Spielberg, for the longest time, wanted to make a Bond film. He would have made the worst Bond film. And Albert kept pushing him away because he wasn't British. Hmm. And they've only now decided they're going to work with directors who aren't necessarily British. I mean, Martin Scorsese, my question isn't, could he do it? Martin Scorsese could do anything if he wanted to. Would he have done it? <laughs> That's my question. If he worked on the script, oh yeah. yes, yes, I it would have been. I would say yes. Let's give it to Scorsese. The only movie I could see Scorsese doing is Casino Royale. That would have been good for yeah. Now it makes sense. Hmm. Give him the establishment of the character. Hmm. That's what he does with, with all his television shows. You have you have some options there. Peter Jackson is the obvious choice I, off this I list. I like Peter Jackson. I want to give it to Peter Jackson. Yeah, I feel with all, like all the like action scenes and stuff they had written into this particular film, like he probably would have pulled it off a lot better. I think he would do it and not overdo it, but also still have some fun. He would have brought an energy to it that we wouldn't have necessarily seen from the rest of these movies. It would have been interesting and different. And of course, because of Michael Apta's experience, the joke around the set was that the movie was really called 007 Up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's fair. That's I fair. bet you that annoyed the director so much. <laughs> <laughs> we move on to our cast. Mm. And we start with the man, Pierce Brosnan, as James Bond. What do we think of Pierce in this one? He's not as good in this one. He feels annoyed yeah every time he gets one of those really bad one-liners it's like he's wincing through it but it this this is not the same bond super hot as hell james bond that we got in goldeneye and it's it's only been four years now we'll say his action sequences are convincing as heck he's still got it on that front like even even if they're filmed really badly he's committed invested when the action is going on you buy it but he's definitely grating at some of the dialogue. Yeah, I feel like he's just so tired every time he talks. Like he's there's it's almost like he decided that this movie was going to be bad. So he did the body stuff, the action stuff really well because he's like, I can nail that no matter mm -hmm. what they've written. But <laughs> I 
these the, these lines, this this plot that they have written for me, and you can just see he's kind of like checked out in the scenes where he's doing it. Full agree. Well, and then absolutely, and then you get like the Stockholm syndrome sequence where you suddenly see here's here's a scene as badly as it's written with at least a little bit of of tension and meat to it, and he like overcorrects where all of a sudden he's acting way too hard for what we're used to from Bond. He's very uneven, and some of that could be the director, but we know the writing blows. <laughs> and I don't know, maybe he clearly is not having fun. No. And that's sad. Well, I mean, every Bond movie right, has a couple of like confrontation scenes, right? Where he does kind of get a little bit more animated because sure. he's trying to like lure the bad guy into telling him all of the shit. Yeah. And I feel like they didn't have that for so long that like it it just all came out with that Stockholm syndrome scene. And also you usually in a Bond film you have that one scene where Bond is kind of having fun being a spy where he's like I'm smarter than the bad guy. Gets to have a little verbal sword play. Yeah, or it's like I used my tech well. I know some spy shit. I'm so smart. La 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 la. I get my spy merit badge today. Like, they have, they're having a little fun. There was none of that in this one. It's on par with how tired and bored Sean Connery was in Diamonds Are Forever. It, yeah, that, that's fair. Yeah. The only piece of, specific piece of trivia is that it was his idea to adjust his tie underwater with the boat. That's one of my favorite scenes in this movie. It's, so, <laughs> it's super cute. It's so Bond, though. It's so Pierce Brosnan and Bond. The thing I like about his Bond is he's just a tiny bit prim. Mm-hmm. Just a skosh. I feel like with Pierce Brosnan Braun too, it's almost like a signature, like because he does that when he gets out of the tank to drive uh-huh. it. He does it like all the time in like the most awkward situations where you're like, why are you carrying if your tie is straight? Drive the dang tank. <laughs> Daniel Craig, it's always his cuffs. Yep. Mm-hmm. Which Sean Connery did a lot too. But it's just it's funny they each have a little signature, and it we're gonna repeat at some point. That's fine, but it's cute. And I love it. <laughs> All right. Moving on to Sophie Marceau as Electra King. We have met up with Sophie Marceau before when we discussed the terrible best picture winner, Braveheart. Oh, shit. She was in that. Yes. All right. Other than that, before this, she was in French movies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not even going to attempt with titles, just a general lumping of French movies. Because none of them are of any note for anybody outside of France. That's the problem. <laughs> and then she was also in the earlier Anna Karenina in 1999's A Midsummer Night's Dream. And after this, kind of nothing. Like nothing of note. Cool. What do we think of Sophie Marceau? For what they gave her, she plays into it really well. I think she's probably one of the few actors in this movie that's not checked out. Truth. I don't know that they gave her a ton to work with, but what they gave her to work with, she made work. I like her, and I like her with Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, I, I want to be like, well, she's flat. And I was like, no, it's not that she's flat. It's that you have literally no reason for them to be this enamored with one another. Yeah, like he's instantly has this allegiance to her, which makes no sense. While I'm watching the movie, somehow in the back of my head is, okay, well, they're clearly like old lovers. But then I realized you did never tell me that. 
So how would I know? <laughs> well, you have to assume that he's just like decided I'm supposed to take care of her because she's important to this dude that was important to M. But they don't even really establish that. No. So it's a whole lot of like I have to do a lot of work as an audience member to connect those dots, and I shouldn't have to do that. So that's bad. I feel like they tried so hard, but they failed so badly because there's like one or two things that they even had line wise in the script that if they just had made it more impactful or tied it together with other things, it would explain it. Like M talks about her activating her motherly instincts, like against my motherly instincts. I gave him this advice. Like, okay, cool. So you're a mom. You're seeing her as the daughter. That's your emotional connection. Sure. I mean, I misread that line as that. I misheard that line and thought she was actually M's daughter. That would have been fine, too. But like, (laughs) yeah, that that would have been a crazy reveal later. Like Bond's like, why are we protecting her? Like, why are we doing all this shit? And M reveals, that's my actual daughter. And that's why she did the favor for the king in the first place to get his money back. Exactly. (laughs) That would have been amazing. Like I said, like they, they have so many like little lines and things in this movie where it's like they tried or they like forgot about it and if they had just like tied two or three of those together i would have cared a lot more about electra's character like i would have liked her more i love like what she did with what they gave her but i feel like between bond just being checked out and what they gave her she just didn't have much of a chance (laughs) now barbara broccoli said of her character Bond thinks he's found Tracy, but he's really found Blofeld. That is a very good description of her. I know. I like that. And who could have been better? MGM desperately wanted Sharon Stone. Hmm. No. Really? 1999 Sharon Stone. No. Okay. You know who I would have liked instead of Sharon Stone, though? Who? Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, I knew you were going to say <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer. I knew I it. I knew that. <laughs> she would have been great. Maybe that would have woken Bond up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because she could have gotten that feisty and still kind of have that European vibe. Would have been great. As the anarchist Renard, Robert Carlyle. Before this, he was in Riff Raff, Being Human, Train Spotting, Hamish Macbeth, The Full Monty, and Plunkett and McLean. After this, Angela's Ashes, The Beach, Formula 51, Aragon, 28 Weeks Later, Stargate Universe, Once Upon a Time, and T2 Train Spotting. What do we think of Robert Carlyle? He's better than this. He's trying really hard. He is literally an exposition machine, and it sucks. He's a flesh robot. Yeah. That's the direction they gave him, right? Like, I, you I can't know. feel anything. Like, how how do you play that without actually having a director there to really help you figure out a way to do that without being creepy? And he's a really good actor. (laughs) They didn't know what to do with him. No. And I, like, his relationship with Elektra is so, it's bizarre. And I think it's because they didn't know what they could show of their relationship without getting really sexually explicit. Well, not only that, but, like, I think they were trying to toe that line because they do have that backstory for those two characters of... Mm -hmm. 
him having kidnapped her and for her to survive, yeah. she used her body with her captors. So they're trying to make him, you hate him with just that. Yeah. And they're trying to like toe that line between their relationship, but you can't really do that very yeah. well. It's not great. The problem for me is you were willing to go that far with Xenia on a top and Golden Eye. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, name names aside, they're terrible, but, but they were willing to do that in GoldenEye. They were willing to go that far in the sexual nature of that. Yeah, but they made her a cartoon character. I know, I know. And we, we've posited and why we thought that might be. And nobody gives a shit, so that's why they did it. Yeah. They wrote themselves into so many fucking corners in this movie. <laughs> Not mad, I'm just disappointed. Again, it, it just... <laughs> If they had just taken away the him losing all feeling thing, I think yeah. they would have given a lot more room to such a great actor to really be able to own this role. But like taking away the way not only the actor, but the character interacts with everything, you know, losing his sense of touch and taste and smell and feeling. Yeah. Like, okay, how do you, how, 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 how? What they should have done is that. He is losing it in the course of the movie. Like in instead of instead of he has completely lost all feeling and he is slowly dying. Instead, it should be this happened however long ago, but it has now gotten to the point where it is affecting his senses. And so slowly, bit by bit, we are seeing him lose his sense of smell, his sense of touch, his sense of taste. And like yeah, like he can no longer like feel it on this side of his body. Or- and so all of a sudden now he's like, wait a minute. <laughs> And it's both the disorientation, but then the superpower of it. Well, and they almost got close with that, right? Like, we, th- yeah, they had scenes with potential with that. Like when they were at the the place with the hot rocks, the devil's breath or the dragon's breath place, right? And he picks it up and he just yeah. kind of like stands there. Like that could have been mm-hmm. used for that. That could have been used for character development for that villain. But they just used it as like a throwaway exposition time to be like, let's tell more of our secret plan, guys. And then now you have the stakes in the nuclear sub. Now he's lost complete feeling, so he's ready to go on the suicide mission. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. It's great. And it's such an easy fix. That's the saddest part. <sighs> All right. On to Dr. Christmas Jones, Denise Richards. Before this, did tons of television. Nowhere, Starship Troopers, Wild Things, and Drop Dead Gorgeous. After this... Spin City, Empire, Undercover Brother, Scary Movie 3, Blue Mountain State, 30 Rock, Medea's Witness Protection, American Satan, The Bold and the Beautiful, and The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Hells, yeah, it's Real Housewives. You do you. <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> I am an unabashed Real Housewives fan. I can't help myself. We talked a little bit about Denise. She's good. She's actually good. She is selling what she's got to sell. I feel like she did so well in this role because they gave so little to the character writing-wise that she's like, I'm just going <laughs> to fill in what I need to and kind of make up for this writing gaff and this directing <laughs> like gap and just be a Bond girl. Like, <laughs> Yeah, she's sh- like, I'm going to be a Bond girl. I'm going to say these lines. I'm going to be hot. I'm going to flirt when I'm supposed to flirt. I'm going to give sarcastic, dirty looks at Bond when he's being misogynistic to me, and that's going to be okay. Yeah. I'm down for that. The way that they wrote this character and presented this character on screen, nobody bought it. Like, widely, 
This has been considered the worst Bond girl of all time by a big contingent of the Bond fandom. And I understand at the time why that happened. False. But watching this, I go, that's not the problem. The problem was the writing. Mm -hmm. Denise Richards sold the shit out of this character. Richards was actually very into the character. She described Christmas Jones as brainy, athletic, and had depth of character. Mm -hmm. And the way she portrayed it, it did. She saw through what was on the page and said, I'm going to make a full character. Whether people buy it or not, I don't care. But it was received so poorly that this was the first Bond film to win a Razzie for Worst Supporting Actress. I almost feel like when she went ahead and built this character, because they gave her so little to work with, because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a Bond girl. They're there for reasons that aren't supposed to be filled out. I feel like she almost went for being like, the female version of Bond? Because that, that line they have when they first meet almost to run away from yeah. things. <laughs> like, we neither of us want to feel. It was like, cool, you're a British secret agent? Yeah, I defuse nuclear bombs, so fuck off, dude. <laughs> like, I'm pretty cool in my own right. Well, like, even the, the scene where they're going to go disable the bomb in the po- pipeline, right? He's like, he's trying to dismiss her as the uh, Bond girl. They're like, okay, what do I need to defuse a nuclear bomb? And her answer is straight up me. Like, me. <laughs> yep. Which is like, yeah, she's like, I'm not here to mess around. Like, I don't care. Yeah, they they gave her the Razzie because of her taking off the hazmat suit and being in that outfit. Yeah. And that literally ruined it. And that's sexist as fuck. Yeah, like, this is a costuming problem more than anything. If we change that costume in that first scene... It changes the tone for the rest of the movie for yeah. her. Mm-hmm. It really does, because the rest of it, it's fine. She's she's dressed fine. It's 1999 audiences yeah. being too it's, stupid to see through that bullshit. bullshit. Denise Richards, you deserve better. You do. You got robbed here. Who could have been better? Tiffany Thiessen. Ooh, no. <laughs> love, love you, Kelly Kapowski. Love you. No. <laughs> that is it for our main actors. We move on to Arpons, random people of note. We have Robbie Coltrane returning as Valentin Zukovsky. Most of his lines in this movie were taken from scenes cut from Tomorrow Never Dies, where he was supposed to be. What? What is this nonsense? That's that's very normal for the Bond franchise, let's be real. I mean, I- that, makes, that makes the scenes between them make more sense while they were a little bit better <laughs> they 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 were because they actually like had a point like he had a whole backstory he's yep. got this operation going on i love i love robbie coltrane yep like he's awesome we have judy dench as m of course amazing yeah. wonderful love. fun to see her vulnerable i i like seeing her in jail we have desmond llewellyn as q and we are going to take a nice pause here desmond llewellyn was planning to appear in die another day and would have stuck around with the franchise if he'd been offered. He was getting up in age, but he still wanted to do it. Shortly after filming Wrapped, he died in a car crash. He died in a car crash? He died in a car crash. So this is why this movie is Q's last film. A video release was dedicated to him with a tribute montage of all of Q's best moments, and Q's retirement goodbye scene is based on Merlin's farewell to King Arthur. I'm gonna fucking cry. <laughs> like, were you expecting feels with your bond today? <sighs> Sorry, everybody. No, I knew, like, I knew he passed away. 
I thought he chose to retire because he knew he wasn't going to be long for this world. And that's no. why they filmed the scene they filmed. But he passed away in a car crash. He was going to come back for Die Another Day. It makes me wonder then if they were like going to leave out that scene or that line and then that happened and they just were like... <laughs> It's the perfect send off for his character. Well, and they had written a a walk away scene in Tomorrow Never Dies as well because they were like, we, we're pretty sure he's done. He was like, no, I'm coming back, <laughs> and that could be possible. It also could be that they were going to have QB retired and then pull him back in, which would be fucking hilarious. Probably because they, they, they set him up with the the apprentice who you know locked his jacket in the car door and all that jazz in the. Just love that. <laughs> Bond, what did you do to my fishing boat? I just... I'm so sad. <laughs> like, he's been with us for 19 fucking movies. I'm so sad. I know. Like, I know. I'm legit sad. We have, to, we have to say goodbye now. I'm legit sad. I do... I legitimately am so happy that we got the actual handoff to the new Q. Which in this movie, mm-hmm. of course, being played by John Cleese, but he is R. Not Q. <laughs> yeah. I sincerely hope that in Bond 25, we get the official handoff to whoever is going to become the new James Bond, whoever that is. Because I want that. I want to see that in a James Bond film. I want us to see how that works. They've talked about it so many times. Like, I don't care. We know that the double O number is just a number that is used by different agents, but yep. I want you to show me that the name is just a code name. It was supposed to happen in For Your Eyes Only, and for a while it was going to happen in Goldeneye. Yeah. That's the one thing I really need in 25. Yeah. And I don't, and I, I would fucking love it if it goes to a lady bond. I would love a lady bond. Oh, yeah. With John Cleese, it's funny because. R is never explicitly a named character, but because they joke about it in the one line, he is credited as R for the rest of his appearances in the franchise, even though he's technically Q. That's the best, though. (laughs) Q, not... He should be R, not Q. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Let me introduce you to my young apprentice. (laughs) In comes 60-year-old John Cleese. (laughs) Which is perfect. It's just, it's per- it's perfect. Also rounding out our MI6 crew, we have Samantha Bond returning as Moneypenny, Michael Kitchen as Tanner, and Colin Salmon as Robinson returning from Tomorrow Never Dies. Nice. We have Goldie playing Bull, Zakovsky's right-hand man. Goldie is a famous DJ and graffiti artist known as the King of Jungle Music. So, mm-hmm. I can, so I can cool see that. little appearance here. John Saru as Gabor, he's another like big bodyguard guy. He was Vulcan on American Gladiators. Oh, I think I remember hearing about that when this movie came out because I remember watching that show a lot. We have Patrick Malahide as Lachaise. He played Balon Greyjoy on Game of Thrones. And producer Michael G. Wilson is a man in casino. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's all he gets. <laughs> He's in all of the movies as rando guy in the background. So, you know. And one actress who did make an appearance in the film but did not make the final cut, Jerry Hallowell. Ginger Spice. Mm Mm-hmm. But instead of Ginger Spice, we have another redhead performing our song for this film. And holy shit, 
this might be one of the best Spawn themes ever. It's it's up there. With Garbage performing The World Is Not Enough. Y'all. It's a bear. It's so good. It, it, it. It's good on its own. Apart from the film, it's a good song. I mean, all of the James Bond like opening theme like parts are always kind of trippy and great. But this one, like, not only was the music banging, but like the visuals were trippy. The yeah. oil stuff was so weird in the best way. It was awesome. The song did not chart in the U.S., but it did make it to number 11 in the U.K., but I remember hearing it on the radio. Oh, sure. So, like, it was a, I think it was a slow burn, but it definitely got radio play. Don Black wrote this. He also wrote Tom Jones' Thunderball, Diamonds Are Forever, The Man with the Golden Gun, and Tomorrow Never Dies. I can see it. So, see he's it. got some legit Bond themes under his belt as mm-hmm. well. And who could have been better? Jamiroquai. Ooh. But JK was not interested in doing it. That could have been cool. I mean, it would have been a funkier 90s vibe, but I think it would have wound up a lot like Sam Smith's writing, Writings on the Wall. I didn't love that one. All right, trivia. When MI6 found out that the filmmakers wanted to shoot a scene near their headquarters, they started to prohibit for security risks. But... MP Janet Anderson urged the foreign secretary to overrule this. Quote, after all Bond has done for Britain, it was the least we could do for Bond. That's precious. So that whole MI6 scene is filmed in and around actual MI6 headquarters. I appreciate All of the pinups in Zakovsky's operations room are former Bond girls. (laughs) That's a fun bit. That's cute. The cable scene at the Millennium Dome required a shit ton of stunt work, and they actually used a shot in the film of one of the stuntmen missing one of the cables. Now, he didn't get hurt, but he missed his cue in one of the parts, and Apted specifically decided to keep it in to highlight how difficult the work was to honor the stunt performers. I love that, and it makes me want to rant that stunt performances should be honored at award shows. Yes, absolutely. 100%. I also think that's probably one of the few scenes in the movie, like directing slash editing choice wise, that actually is very impactful because like you are freaking out that he's not going to hang on to something and actually like Uh catch himself. (laughs) And this is one of the first times we've ever seen Bond get hurt, like legitimately hurt outside of a punch. It's a wild ass scene. It's stupid, but it's wild. To obtain the x-ray effect, actors were filmed once with their regular costumes, then again with special costumes that revealed all the weapons under translucent clothing. They then overlaid those two and matted them together to get the x-ray effect. That's cool. Yeah. In the Scottish headquarters, a portrait of Bernard Lee, the original M, hangs behind M's desk. Aww. <laughs> That's cheesy and I love it. They do love to keep it in the family, this 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 franchise. Fuck, punch shouldn't make me cry. Uh, Damn it. And that castle is the same castle used in Highlander. Oh no! 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 no. I'm Connor McLeod of the Clan McLeod. Born in 1519, I am immortal. I cannot die. 
Sets were built in Turkey before shooting began in those areas, but one day, while Apted was touring locations, a bombing took place. Oh. None of the Istanbul shots, therefore, took place in Turkey for security reasons. Well, shit. And not a single cast member ever set foot in the country. The jetty scenes of Electra's palace with the boats were actually shot in Pinewood's boat tank in front of a blue or green screen, which honestly is impressive knowing yeah, that because look it looks like she's just on a balcony in a bay. Yeah, those look good. They also planned on filming in the Alps for the skiing scenes, but there was too high a risk of avalanches at the time. While they were there scouting, the crew actually assisted with rescues from the avalanches that were occurring. Wow. Yeah. That's kind of badass. I know. Like, it's crazy. The thing we've always said is the production design and stunt coordination on these movies is impeccable. It is the best you could possibly get. They, they have the best of the best working on these. And a secret unit with a crew of 12 did actually film footage in Turkey using the code name Destiny. They didn't use the actual film name. Hmm. They didn't want anybody to know that Bond was there to avoid the security issues. Nice. I always like to know the code names for films. When the BMW reps learned how the BMW Z8 was going to be used in this film mm -hmm. and get totally annihilated, they were speechless. <laughs> what did they expect a Bond car to go through? <laughs> like the whole point is to destroy the car. And this time they went, nah. <laughs> like, we gotta make up for last time. Q, Q is starting yeah. to expect us to get these cars back. We can't, we can't keep <laughs> that up. Electra's pipeline was made entirely of cardboard. <laughs> cool. The opening sequence is so long that the titles and opening song didn't occur in theaters until one minute in reel two of the film. That makes a lot of sense. This is what we were talking you about. You do right not there. get to the opening sequence. Yeah, the, it takes so long. They have to flip reels for the projectionist in order to get to the opening of this movie. Man. <laughs> I mean, you get a, you essentially get like an act one before you even get the opening theme. Mm -hmm. I know. Seriously. To promote the film, Skywriters were hired to write 007 in the sky across the United States. Cheesy, the but I like it. <laughs> the film was actually planned to release in 2000, and possible alternate titles for the film were Death Waits for No Man, Fire and Ice, Pressure Point, and Dangerously Yours. Oh, those titles suck. Yeah, they, they made their correct choice here. They did. They did. And finally... The total body count for this film, ever growing in these movies now, is 60. All right, 60. And that leads us to ratings. For every movie, we have a custom rating system. Okay. And for this one, I feel like we have to go with Q fishing boats, don't we? It's the boat. Oh, okay, yes. I like the boat. The boat is pretty cool. Boat's badass. The boat is pretty. It's used really well, too. It's a two and a half for me. Two and a half fishing boats. Really? Because... That's high. It's not the worst one I've seen, but the writing is crap and the directing's crap. I'm going too. Okay. I just, it falls flat. That's fair. And then, like I said, it was one of the most bizarre experiences to watch a movie that's doing okay and mediocre. And then all of a sudden, as it goes towards its conclusion, just gets worse and worse and worse. <laughs> it's not like 
the worst thing I've ever seen, but it's not worth really going to redo. It's a two for me. Caleb, what do you give it? And half ratings are acceptable. I would say writing's really bad. Directing didn't save it. Pierce Brosnan's checked out. Q's still there. Q's always there. Bond girl's good. Both villains didn't have a whole lot to work with. I'm going to give it like a one and a half. All right. Okay. Respect. I respect the tough rating. It's true. And that's our movie. Yeah, I mean, uh, oh, number nineteen. But I'm, I'm still, I, I'm still shocked by Desmond Llewellyn. Like, I, I just, <laughs> I just thought like he went, he died of old age. He died in a car crash. Yep. This is shocking news for me. <sighs> I'm devastated. Well, Kayla, if people wanted to find you on the internet or more from you, where would they find you? Uh, you can find me posting all the time on Twitter at Just Thinking K, or you can check out my mostly weekly blog, uh, DM Dalliance. Nice. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking Bond with us. No this problem. This has been so much fun. Like I said, no, don't need any excuse to ever watch a Bond or spy <laughs> movie. <laughs> Uh, we'll definitely have to have you back for some future adventure films for sure. All right. Well, until next time. Bye, bye everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.